For 30 years, four of the most notorious and mysterious double murders in Virginia history have remained unsolved. The Colonial Parkway murders have puzzled investigators, but a family member of one victim says he's more optimistic than ever the cases will be solved. News 3's Brendan Ponton spoke with that family member in his first visit to the scene where his sister was found murdered. The Colonial Parkway is one of the most scenic roads you'll take in Virginia, connecting Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. But this winding road holds secrets. Secrets that have now been kept for 30 years. It was fall 1986. Kathy Thomas and her girlfriend, Becky Dowski, wound up dead just off the parkway. Kathy's brother Bill recently visited the crime scene for the first time. I think it's a significant anniversary. I know we're one of the longest unsolved multiple homicides in the United States. From 1986 to 1989, three couples were killed. A fourth is still missing, but presumed dead. They were stabbed or shot around the Williamsburg area. The killings have been dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders. Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski were the first victims. The two were out one October night in Kathy's car. Unfortunately, something transpired. They were ultimately murdered. Uh, they were strangled with rope. Their throats were cut from beyond ear to ear. Thomas says authorities aren't sure where the murders happened, but Kathy and Becky's bodies were found in their car down this embankment behind me, closer to the York River. It was very hard to understand the brutality of it and not just why it happened, but how it happened. The Thomas family watched as murder after murder after murder happened. Are all four of these incidents related? That's been the subject of debate for decades. There are some similarities in the cases, all four involved couples. The point has been made to me, Bill, what are the chances of four double homicides happening, you know, in and around Williamsburg, Virginia over this three-year period? And I have to agree, I, I think that's, that's pretty unusual. Thomas says he has hope forensic testing will produce new leads in the cases. And as we approach the 30th anniversary of his sister's killing, hopes he'll live to see the day someone is caught. I think we're getting closer. I think we may have a day where we actually have a conversation to talk about how, you know, an arrest has been made or suspects have been identified, or perhaps we could say someday that the Colonial Parkway murders have been solved. But until then, the families wait and the killer or killers continue to get away with it. Along the Colonial Parkway, Brendan Ponton, News 3. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now this week, I'm once again joined by Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley for the final part of this fascinating interview. Now you're going to hear new information about the case, and you'll understand more about why the victimology is so important and why processing crime scenes thoroughly and effectively and speaking to family members really helps us understand targeting and motivation. And as I always say, if you learn how someone lived, 
you'll understand how they died. Okay, so here's your trigger warning, because in this episode, we also discuss graphic details of the murders. So let's jump back in where we left off and pick up with talking about what's new in the case, what's changed for Bill and Kristen and why, and you'll hear my reactions and my analysis based on that new information. Okay, so without further ado, let's jump back in to this fascinating interview with Bill and Kristen. Whoever this offender is, he's very comfortable, at least initially, in that environment on the Colonial Parkway and willing to spend a great deal of time setting up this scenario, killing these young people, moving bodies around, staging vehicles, Mm -hmm. things we've learned in the last couple of years, by the way, that are very interesting. And it's, it's funny how these cases can grow and change. Let me give you an example. Michael Knobling, David's brother, they were very close. He explained to us some things about the pickup truck that are wrong. He said that his brother was very proud of this Ford Ranger pickup truck. And he always, always parked the truck. He backed into the space. This is something truck guys do. And he never, ever, even when he went into McDonald's, you know, to grab a burger or whatever, he never parked the truck nose in. He always did this elaborate thing where he turned the truck around where it was. So it was facing out. Now, he also hardwired the radio. So it was not necessary to have the key in the accessory position in order to play the radio. But when the truck is found, the truck is parked nose into the parking space, which his brother David would not have done. And it's in the accessory position in the ignition with the radio going. And he said, David did not park the truck that way. And he said, and David would have under no circumstances ever left the truck unlocked. And the truck is all of those things. So everything about it, about that scenario, even just from the the way the vehicle is positioned, is completely wrong. Which means, I think you can draw the conclusion pretty strongly, somebody else moved that pickup truck, likely after the two people had been killed and their bodies dumped in the water. So these are things that we've actually learned. I think the law enforcement investigators should have learned these things years ago, and maybe they did, and we didn't hear about it. But it's us circling back now, all these years later, and kind of re-interviewing family members. We've learned more things about these young people and what may have happened to them than I think we've ever known before. Yes. I mean, those idiosyncrasies are really important to know. We call it victimology. Knowing all those details, he would never have put the car, the truck in nose first, right? So that detail is vital to know about when thinking about targeting and what's happened post-offence as well. You know, how much time do we believe a perpetrator has spent at a scene? That's really important. That can help you understand whether it's linked to another case or not. Because on the on the basis of certainly what I know about the cases, and maybe it's because I've spent more time talking to you, Bill and, and Kristen, about Kathy and, and Becky, you know, that seems that much more is known and much more time was spent at that scene. 
And yes, perpetrators learn. They learn their tradecraft, what works, what's functional. The same as Dennis Rader learned that when he first broke into a house with a family, he tried to control all of them. But he, and it's horrific, but he tried to initially kill all of them by putting bags over their heads to suffocate them. Well, on a functional level, in terms of your time and physical force and control, that's not efficient. So that never happened again after crime scene one. He learned to use a gun, okay, so for expediency. So again, perpetrators would always learn these things and we may make assumptions and the wrong sorts of assumptions and that's when problems start to happen about what's linked and what's not and who the perpetrator might be. And I don't know if there are any other new key pieces of information that you've discovered that you think is relevant to share before we go back to Kathy and Becky, because that's really important detail that's so helpful. Well, there are things that we've revisited, for instance, in incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer on the Interstate 64 rest stop. It seems that a lot of people seem to have forgotten that there's a large amount of cash that's missing Mm -hmm. in that final Mm -hmm. incident, which is Daniel had done a lot of painting jobs that summer with his dad, house painting and helping uh, people fix things up around the house that summer. And he was given a fairly large amount of cash, six to $800 by his father before they headed down to Virginia beach. He was going to be moving in with Anna Maria and his brother, Clint, Anna Maria was his brother Clint's girlfriend. They were supposedly engaged. So they're traveling companions and he's ultimately going to become a roommate to his brother and his brother's girlfriend. But he's carrying a large amount of cash and she's also carrying less cash, but she's carrying two different wallets Mm -hmm. and all of those wallets disappear. And so Kristen and I both think that there's a possibility There could be a robbery motive in this final incident. And quite frankly, that crime scene and what we know about the victimology of the two victims, Anna Maria and Daniel, it feels very different than the other crime scenes. So I think there's a strong possibility that incident number four, Phelps Lauer, actually falls off the table if this case comes together in the way that we think it's going to. I think there's a robbery motive there. There are people that knew them, young people, kind of sketchy, who traveled back with them from Virginia Beach, and they knew that Daniel was going to be coming into some money. And six to $800 is a fair amount of money. And in 1989, it was even more money than it feels like today in 2022. Yeah. So I think there are other aspects to these cases that have come out over time, two of these guys that probably knew about the money were suspects in the early going of the investigation. And from my perspective, have never been cleared. And I think there's still a strong possibility that incident number four is not part of a series, but may actually be a robbery. 
And I think that if you ask Bill or I on pretty much any given day, do you think all these cases are connected? The answer is going to change a little bit every single time because we, we do get people ask us this all the time. Do you guys think all the cases are connected? But where I stand, I think, Bill, we're still on the same page on this, but you can correct me if we're not. I think that where we stand right now is that we don't think incident number four is connected. We do think there's that robbery motive there. And I think honestly that Daniel and Anna Marie, or I'm sorry, I do think that Robin and David's case might eventually come off the table as well. I think that there is a, a different avenue that investigators should be looking into that maybe they didn't pay enough attention to the first time around uh, regarding that person of interest that I, I mentioned earlier that is in common with Laurie Ann Powell and Brian Pettinger. I think that all of those can be grouped into one case. I think ultimately... One of these days, once this is solved, and it, it will be, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise, it will be. I, I think that we're going to find that some of these cases do fall off the table. Bill, are we still in accordance on that or have I have I spoken out of turn? No. And, you know, you and I have always had this agreement with our podcast and all the things we've done together. We don't have to agree on everything. And for a second there, I was listening to you going, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. But you know something? <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and my own, no, thank you. My own personal views, Laura, have shifted over the years. I believe that one time that these four double homicides were a series. Now I'm much more skeptical because we've learned more about these individuals, how they lived, and how they died. And I think that Kristen's summary is actually quite good. So we may ironically have a situation where this serial killer may turn out to be not that. And we may actually have a series of individual murders or perhaps only one or two are related. And if there's something else that I can add to, um, and this is something Bill and I have talked about on the podcast before, I think that one of the issues with this case sometimes is that it received a lot of notice in popular culture in that it had a lightly fictionalized book written about it by crime superstar author Patricia Cornwell. And she put forth the narrative that all four of these cases, she gave all of the victims different names, but she laid out that these were a series of cases perpetrated by a serial killer. And by the end of the book, it was, of course, a serial killer, CIA operative working out of Camp Perry, which is the CIA training base up here in Williamsburg. The CIA is not going to get mad at me for saying that. Everybody knows it is. But you have this whole narrative that has been put out in popular culture that this is a series of homicides. It's a serial killer. And in fact, we've had people approach Bill and I and say, wait, but they solved that, right? It was that guy from Camp Perry. No, it wasn't a guy from Camp Perry. And no, they haven't solved it. I think one of the things that this case maybe suffers from is the fact that there was so much play in the popular culture surrounding Patricia Cornwell's book that you do have these mistaken ideas about what this case is and is not that have been perpetrated by that book. Yes, well, fact versus fiction. Patricia Cornwell used to come into the intelligence cell where I worked at New Scotland Yard along with other writers to get ideas. And she was very upset with me when I worked on a certain high profile case that was never solved in London, our first serial killer case that has a terrible moniker associated with it. And I'll, I'll say the first part to it, which was Jack. 
um, I won't say the next part, the R word, you know, and writers can have very strong views about who they think did something or did not do something and linking things. And it can be put into the zeitgeist, whether it's an anonymous or they shape it differently, but people tend to know the case that they're talking about and that can do a disservice actually. The same as the monikers, the same as, you know, geolocating things um, and closing mindsets. And, and what I really commend you both for saying and for thinking is that as you accumulate more knowledge and you get into the detail and you understand more about what's gone on, of course you change your thinking. And that's one of the things as a behavioral analyst, as you as assimilate more information, you might start off thinking A, but you then get to B, C, D, E, F, and you've got to, as new information arises, review your own thinking and not get stuck in the, this is what I think, and I'm going to now look to prove this is what I think. That often is the mindset in law enforcement and the confirmation bias and all the issues of not having an open mind is, is highly problematic. And I do wonder if that's what's gone on here, whether there's just been very strong opinions and new information hasn't changed those opinions or whether there's some political play um, at work. So perhaps we'll we'll end because I want, want to honour your time and we've been talking for some time, but catch us up with where the case is now because, and let's talk about Kathy and Becky specifically, because you talked about Kathy fighting and potentially being non-compliant. She has defensive injuries. I know that there was some hair that she had in her hand. There were also some fibres, cigarette butts. Um, and at a time, going way back, I'm looking at a piece of... Uh, an article that I had from when you and I first talked, Bill, in, in 2016, where it said that there were 150 possible suspects at one time uh, were being looked at. Where is Becky and, and Kathy's case specifically now and what's happening with the evidence and the forensics? Well, it, getting a straight answer out of my friends at the FBI has always proven to be very difficult. They're very big on asking questions and their attitude is we don't answer questions. So I've asked these questions and we've had some, shall we say, frank conversations behind closed doors about my frustration, my family's frustration with the status of the investigation. The information flow, quite frankly, is terrible. They are not good about sharing information. So I think about these issues almost every day, but getting a straight answer out of the FBI has been incredibly frustrating. I had some very strange conversations with a guy I like quite a bit, who's the senior agent on the case now, where he was telling me that the FBI doesn't have the funding necessary to complete DNA testing in Kathy and Becky's case. And I said, that was ridiculous. And I said, well, first of all, the Colonial Parkway murders families have had some success raising funds. We'll crowdfund it. And, you know, we have tens of thousands of people following this case and various social media platforms. And people have volunteered mm -hmm. to make financial contributions if that's what it takes. So I said, look, we'll raise the funds. And he said, oh, we cannot accept gifts of that type. And I said, now you're creating a catch-22 here. You're telling me the FBI doesn't have enough money to conduct advanced forensic testing in my sister's case. 
I offer to find ways to pay for it. And you tell me that's not acceptable. I said, now you've created a catch 22 here. You won't pay for it. You say the federal government doesn't have enough money, which is the biggest eye roller of all. And then when I say, look, we'll work together and we'll figure out a way to raise the funds. You tell me that's not acceptable. So basically what you're saying is we're not going to move this case forward. And I said to the agent respectfully, but I mean, the tone gets pretty firm after, you know, you're being thrown what you think of as just outrageous bullshit. I said, look, I want to be clear here, agent, special agent. That's not an acceptable answer. I'm not accepting your answer. And I uh, listen to me carefully. I'm not going away. We're not going away. We're going to move this case forward. And you telling me the Federal Bureau of Investigation doesn't have enough funding to see this case across the finish line. When you're into this case now for tens of thousands of of hours, think about all the people that have worked on these cases. Mm-hmm. You're telling me you're not going to be able to find $5,000, which is nowhere near the real cost of conducting these tests. But Othram, our friends in Houston who are cracking cold cases across the country, mm-hmm. finally got so tired of the excuses, they came back to me and said, we'll conduct the tests at no charge. And I said, well, that's very kind. I appreciate that. Uh, and I said something about Kathy's case and they stopped me. This is the middlemans, uh, Kristen and David Middleman who run the company. They said, no, no, we're not just talking about Kathy's case. You send us any evidence from any aspect of the colonial parkway murders. We will test it at no charge. They said, you know, at this point, the families deserve answers. They said, no, no charge for any aspect of testing in this case. And we still can't get the FBI and the Virginia State Police to move forward. And that is maddening. Well, it's not just maddening, it's asinine, quite frankly. The time and money and resource, I mean, seriously, they put all that money into a covert investigation into Daryl Rice. And I know you both know about that with, you know, Lolly and Julie's case, a four-year operation that costs a huge amount of money. I can't even put a, a number on it, but I do know that that would be an extortionate amount of money to run an operation like that across four years and some of the things that they did. And yet you've got Lolly and Julie's case where you still have forensic evidence, quite similar to Kathy and Becky, actually, of cigarette butts and partial prints and fibers. And there's some gloves in that case, too. And yet that's not being progressed, which is really alarming to me. And to hear that you're being told that actually we haven't got the money, but on the other hand, we can't progress it any other way. That just seems absolutely asinine to me. It does. And I want to be clear here. There's things that we all know about in 2022, 2023, that we have the capability to do now from a forensic perspective that we weren't able to do back in 1986 to 1989. I understand that. So I'm not implying that these cases could have been solved 33 to 36 years ago, but they can be solved now. And the science is so advanced. And when I have the top DNA labs in the country, not just Othram, but others as well, every single one of the people that I've talked to have said, 
just get me the evidence. We want to help you. They know how hard the families have worked and everybody wants to see us move this thing across the finish line. I've said to the FBI, solve this case. I will sing your praises to the skies. I know this case can be solved because experts tell me it can be solved. So let's work together and find a way to get us across the finish line. And I think if we break one of the Colonial Parkway murders, the others will begin to make mm -hmm. some sense. We may see there are relationships. I think we'll achieve a lot of clarity in addition to moving these cases one step closer to justice. Yes. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. You know, for me, the and I can't help but draw the parallels with Julie and Lolly because there are just so many similarities that, you know, 10 years apart, long holiday weekends, targeted outdoors, targeted in beauty spots, in isolated areas, under the cover of darkness, two women together, lesbians, two fit women, two athletic women who can take care of themselves. The fact their bodies were both, they were found, right? And the hands have been bound, the mouths have been gagged. They had injuries to their 
throats. And that's wet work. That's up close and personal. This individual wanted to be up close and personal and managed to control them and brought things to the scene to control them, but also took things away. And that's also important, the taking away of things. That tells me preparatory behavior. That tells me criminal sophistication, although there were some things that didn't work out. And that happens across behavior in a career, but going with murder in mind, and there's not a robbery motive, or so it seems. Kathy had money, Julie and Lolly did too, that wasn't taken. But the geography, I think all of these points together, the geography, the victimology, the victimology to me, and the forensics, that there's evidence that could be exploited in both cases, to know whether these two cases are linked for me, is really important. And then we haven't discussed the whole Mark Evanitz of it all, and I'm sure that there are other individuals. But for me, not to progress the forensics regarding a very prolific offender like that, who was only stumbled upon and clearly was very prolific, and there's a lot more evidence that could well have been progressed, and yet the FBI chose not to. I can't understand that decision. And Catherine's tried to explain the information that she received, but I can't understand why you wouldn't take that case to the natural conclusion of where it could be taken when you know that the perpetrator is so prolific. And if it's not done in that case, it doesn't give me confidence in any others. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's trust and confidence for you to feel that the right things are being done for the right reasons. And Bill, you're so measured. You say you had a frank conversation. I mean, I, there wouldn't be words coming out my mouth. It would just be, you know, Dracaris, just fire and steam. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying the conversations were always polite, but my mom would not be proud of me for losing my temper. I, I have lost my temper more than a few times, but I'm not proud of that. And my lovely late very Irish mother would be very disappointed in me for losing my temper. <laughs> but sometimes you have to lose your shit, you know, and I say that having worked with hundreds of families. And I remember some of the ones who got the results lost their shit and put the police on notice and things got moving, you know, and you have to just keep that getting loud and bringing that energy to it, unfortunately, because I just get the sense that they just hope the voices were quiet, quietened down and it all goes away and people, you know, gradually as families, you know, the older generation with time. We've lost, uh, there are 16 parents in the Colonial Parkway murders, eight victims. Uh, 16 moms and dads. We just lost uh, the ninth parent. So we only have seven parents. Both my parents are gone. There are days when I get discouraged when I've said to Kristen, I feel like they're waiting for us to die. Yeah. And it, that's not a good feeling. And no. I have lost it a few times and I will as well. And I've also said, look, I've been off the FBI Christmas card list for a lot of years and I just <laughs> don't care. I don't see myself as a critic of law enforcement. I'm not here to tear at the FBI. All I'm asking them to do is put time, attention and resources. Experts tell me these cases are solvable cases. Let's work together and solve them. Well, you're asking for people to do their job, do their damn job, as I always say, Bill. 
And I think you've been very polite about it, actually. So when you say that you lose it, I know that you're you're very polite in doing so. But at times you just got to shake shit up because it, it's just not good enough. And one of the things that I heard you say and, and over time, which really does upset me, is you being constantly reminded it's a cold case, i.e. it's not a priority, it doesn't matter. Because to every family member, it matters. And how dare people talk to you with that level of disrespect? It's not okay to keep reminding a family member that the case is not a priority. That is just, you know, on a human level, that's not cool at all. We figured that out over 36 years. You don't have to remind me. And I have said through gritted teeth, you do not have to keep reminding me that the Colonial Parkway murders and that Kathy Thomas's murder is a cold case. You do not need it. And I said, it gets offensive. I understand terrible things happen every single day. There are obviously priorities when people's lives are at risk. A case is fresh. There are opportunities. I understand that. No one ever said that we should put this cold case ahead of all others. All we're saying is put some resources into this case and the opportunities that the advances in forensics present for all of us now, they need to take advantage of that. I mean, when I see them breaking cases, there was a a case just broken today up in Toronto two separate homicides of of women from 1983. They were just broken and they identified a suspect and arrested somebody. That's exciting. That shows that this can work. That, you know, they're solving cases that are older and more, even more challenging scientifically than our cases. We have evidence. We need to test it to the limits of 2022, 2023 technology. It's not 1986 anymore. Yes. And I do believe the case is solvable. You know, if you take each individual case, but Kathy and Becky's there, there's evidence, there's tangible evidence that can be exploited using new technology. And like with Lolly and Julie, these cases, if it wasn't for Catherine Mars pursuing Lolly and Julie's case and being so invested, because she is heavily invested in it, she wants Right. To her core, she's invested and that's what it takes. And I really hope that we're not having this conversation in another year's time because the FBI can be heroes and sheroes in this. They can do the right thing. And I just hope that they do. But I do know that pressure is needed. And the more people that can give you a voice and amplify and get it back in the media and keep that pressure on getting louder and your message, you're not going away. I'm really glad to hear that. And I hope that you know if there's anything that I can do to help or assist then I will, whether it's amplifying, whether it's putting uh, messages, you know, out there. And this case I am invested in, and I do want to get to the bottom of it as well. Well, thank you. And as always, it's great to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you, Laura, so much for everything. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And is there anything else we haven't covered? I know there's a lot more we could talk about, but is there anything that we can, we can, possibly days, I could keep you on all night and tomorrow, but is there anything we didn't cover that you feel, actually, I really just need to say this. At the risk of overwhelming people, and I understand it's a complicated case, four double homicides, all the different aspects. I think we've done a very good job of uh, 
giving people the basics and then also trying to bring people up to speed in terms of where we find ourselves at this moment in late 2022. Yes. And I would say for anybody who is interested in the case, please do make sure that you follow our social media pages, because that is where we do have all of the information about that case. We have a web page, we have social media pages, we have our own podcast, of course. So we would encourage people like if this is interesting to you, please, please, please listen to all of our coverage and and chime in and um, make your voice heard as well. Hopefully, as you were saying, Laura, the FBI knows that enough people are hearing this and it's in the media and voices are amplified. Maybe they will decide, all right, we need to, it's time to shut up Bill Thomas for a little bit. Let's go ahead and it's a great do goal. the best that we can to solve this. Yeah, and be the heroes and sheroes of the case. And that's what it takes. It takes dedicated, committed and passionate, I have to say that, passionate individuals. And I do hope that there are those individuals on this case. And if they want to hand it over and the evidence, then that can happen too. If they can't fulfill any further processing of the evidence, and if there's the backlog that we all keep hearing of, then why not turn it over to those individuals? You can keep the chain of custody. It just needs to be documented. It's perfectly doable to get evidence to another lab and it can be done. And all of the links that Kristen talked about, they'll be on the sh- in the show notes. And anything else, Bill and Kristen, that you want to send across, I'll put the link in the show notes. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for your time. And um, in a funny way, I hope we don't speak again about the case other than to say, isn't it fantastic that it's been progressed and this is the update. That's what I would like to be talking about, you know, the update of some good news in the case. That would be wonderful. When we solve the Colonial Parkway murders, my intention is to pivot to the larger issue of America's 250,000 cold case homicides. So this will be an ongoing conversation without question. Yes, there's a lot to be done. A lot to be done. Thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, I know we will no doubt talk again. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. What did you make of that? Firstly, I just want to say it's unacceptable how Bill has been treated. You can update families and be sensitive to them. And you know, family liaison training is absolutely key. It was pioneered at New Scotland Yard by my friend and colleague Duncan McGarry and my former boss, Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Grieve. All of those interacting with families of murder victims should be trained and be empathetic. There is no excuse. Also, I always felt Kathy and Becky's murders were different from the other three horrific cases that are called the Colonial Parkway murders, and it seems that there was grouping together under that banner due to the geographic location and the fact that they were double homicides, rather than due to any actual evidence, forensic or circumstantial. Now, it's my opinion that Kathy and Becky and Lolly and Julie's murders are linked, and they are solvable. There are outstanding forensic tests which must be progressed so that the families can have answers once and for all. I've always said that the truth will out eventually, and I hope that the FBI do the right thing for the sake of all the victims and their families. And importantly, the killers are still out there. Who else have they harmed since? Because they won't have just stopped. And where are they now? And what exactly are the FBI doing about it? 
Now, you've heard me say do your damn job because I believe that that's what it takes. And if there's evidence in these cases, it should be tested or the reason communicated to the families for not doing so. All it does is breed mistrust. And as I always say to police, trust is a two-way street. You know, there may be good reason not to test. And if so, explain that to the families and let them know it's sensitive information. But if you simply don't want to test it, hand over the evidence to another expert lab who can. It's really not hard. Transparency and accountability are needed and it starts with good crystal clear communication. You know, what I find ironic is that families of their loved ones, when they've been murdered, they're expected to just implicitly trust the police. That they'll do the right thing. But why should they? I mean, that's a really big ask. And particularly in the current climate of male violence being swept under the carpet and police officers perpetrating violence against women and girls and being exposed for it, along with the horrific levels of institutionalised misogyny being revealed, why should families just trust that law enforcement are doing the right thing? In my opinion, law enforcement must work harder to gain trust and confidence and not just expect it. And like I said, I do believe these cases are solvable and I just wish the professionals involved would get their fingers out and do the right thing and take action. The victims matter, their families matter. They want answers and the public deserve to be protected. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.